0: Hello and welcome to What You've Been Watching, an up-to-the-minute film and TV podcast where your host and leading film critic Roshan Chandy gives you his recommendations for what to watch in the world of TV and film, rounds up the weekly entertainment news and asks guests and listeners the big question, What You've Been Watching? Hello everyone, Roshan Chandy here and welcome to this week's episode of What You've Been Watching. Hope you're having a great week and watching loads of great films. Not long now till the cinemas reopen and we can all get back to some kind of normal. Whatever that means. (laughs) I've got lots to talk about on this show, including reviews of The Pursuit of Love, Nomadland and Zack Snyder's Justice League, along with another very special guest. He's called Sebastian Mann and he's a freelance film critic who has written for a number of publications, including Left Lion magazine. We met up to talk about a lot of things, including Citizen Kane and Mank. We had a lovely chat. you'll hear all that in a bit after i tell you what i've been watching so i've been watching the pursuit of love which was on bbc one last sunday this week now this is the third screen adaptation of nancy mitford's 1945 novel the pursuit of love we previously had an adaptation in 1980 by itv and one in 2001 by the bbc this new version is the shiny, glossy version though, especially as it features two of the hottest stars working, Lily James and Emily Beecham. The plot centres around Beecham's Fanny Logan, whose mother and father have left her to be brought up by the pompous and abusive Uncle Matthew, played by a fabulously moustached Dominic West, and her Aunt Sadie, played by Dolly Wells, in Alconley. Matthew and Sadie are bound by the rules and traditions of the aristocracy. Lily James is Linda, the second Radlett daughter and victim Matthew's abuse. She's best friends with Fanny. The novel and this opening episode basically charts the girls' bizarre upbringing, including their contrasting obsessions with hunting and preventing cruelty to animals. This is along with their secret society, the Hons. The girls receive little in the way of formal education, and as Linda grows older, her sex drive increases and her desire for a romantic life and marriage. I think the first thing to say about this show is that the performances are terrific. I've been a bit unkind to Lily James in the past, saying she was too pretty to be believed as an archaeologist in The Dig, and too nice to be believed in Ben Wheatley's adaptation of Rebecca from last year. She's a delight here. She really captures Linda's sexiness and youthful energy, such as in the multiple nude scenes, but also her fragility and vulnerability. I found it particularly moving when she was kicked by Wes Matthew under the table. Emily Beecham is equally delightful as Fanny. I loved her red hair and eccentric fashion. She gets to don a top hat, a beret, and a wedding dress, all in the space of one episode. I really bought into her and Lily's chemistry, even though they're polar opposites. There's many moments here that reminded me of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, for example, both the book and Greta Gerwig's delectable adaptation. This show is the same penchant for female lives laid bare and square Albeit with more sex and raunchiness. I laughed and cried and teared up at the final wedding scene. Lily and Emily are such treats to watch, and Dominic West made me hate him rotten. I'll definitely be tuning in next week, although the Beeb have made the whole series available on iPlayer. This might be my new binge-watching obsession. It's surely one of the best literary adaptations of the year. That's The Pursuit of Love, and it's on BBC iPlayer now, and it's really worth checking out. Terrific stuff. So there we go. That's what I watched this week. Now it's time to hear what Sebastian Mann has been watching. So this is my podcast interview with Sebastian Mann. Hello to Sebastian. Hello. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, um, you know, after good good afternoon to you, sir, I could say. Um, Yeah, it's great to finally put a face to a name, to be honest, you know, because we know each other basically through Twitter and we both write write for Left Lion. And Sebastian kindly, um, you know, likes my tweets, which is always a bit of an ego boost for myself. (laughs) And, uh, but yeah, and, and, uh, but yeah, it's just really good to put a face to a name.
1: Yeah, no, it's good to, yeah, like you say, well, yeah, put a face to a name finally, actually.
0: Yeah. Have a chat with you, discuss. Films, all the, all the good stuff. Yeah, because that's that's what I enjoy most, just having a really good conversation about films. Um, sure. So tell us tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do for a living.
1: Well, I'm 23 years old. Uh, I don't do anything for a living as such. I'm currently a student at the University of Lincoln uh, doing a master's in journalism. Obviously, I write for left line and stuff, as well as the Indie Pendant, which is a nice little small... Uh, publication, write about films for there. Uh, I'm from Quarrington which is just outside of Lincoln um, near Sleaford if anyone knows that but I'd be surprised if anyone does Um, I'm just doing my MA, I moved back home mid last year Uh, I was in Canterbury working as a tour guide which was really good fun, Uh, stayed there for about five years, Uh, did my bachelor's in University of Kent and there ran the well, ran, I was the head of screening to the Film Society. And that's where I, my passion for film really, really took off. And also where I learned that oh, I really love the sound of my own voice. Yeah. <laughs> great to be here.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, and, and it's, it's great to be able to talk to another freelancer because that's, you know, what I mm-hmm. do for a living myself, basically. And, you know, it's just, and it, and, and yeah, and, and that's why it's fantastic that you've come onto this show. Um, So the title of this show is What You've Been Watching. So now I've got to ask you what you've been watching.
1: Well, a lot of good stuff. Luckily, um, I watched, I rewatched Dawn of the Dead last night, the classic from 1978. Uh, absolutely fantastic. I love it to bits. George Romero, just you know, the zombie Godfather of zombies. I think his name is. Uh, recently watched The Host as well for the first time. The Bong Joon Ho film. See, made history with Parasite and of his I've seen, Memories of Murder, Parasite, and Now the Host. And they're pretty much all technically perfect. I mean, they're perfectly enjoyable and everything, but I think, yeah, they are perfectly made films. So looking forward to checking more of his stuff out. Um, done a lot of Oscar catch up recently as well, which has just been over the weekend when you and I are chatting. So I saw Sound of Metal, which I really loved. Uh, really good performance from Riz Ahmed, very moving. Super clever sound design and Minari as well, Court Minari. Really nice, uh, a little too melodramatic in places for me, but a really solid uh, drama, really nice family drama. Uh, and the other one I saw was Mank, and to, I guess, get in the mood for Mank, I also went back and revisited Citizen Kane, of course, the greatest film ever made, supposedly. Uh, Orson Welles classic and yeah I suppose if something has to be the greatest film ever made you can go a lot worse than Citizen Kane it is,
0: it yeah, is as good yeah. as they say <laughs> Yeah I mean it is widely considered yeah. the greatest film of all time and um, so what what do you think is about that film that keeps people coming, coming back to it as a classic
1: I think a lot of the appeal is that it's called the greatest film ever made. I think for a lot of people, that's why people keep going back to it, if that makes sense. But I think what keeps it alive, if that makes sense, obviously the title does, it's a critical success and technically it's, you know, uh, laid the foundations for a lot. So it's studied quite heavily, but I think it's it's just a great film. It's incredibly enjoyable. The mystery throughout of Rosebud, is really really well told. It's incredibly well put together. Orson Welles' his performance is fantastic. It's still relevant today, I think, in a lot of ways, with the the developing of the newspaper empire Charles Foster Kane puts together. And I think it's one of those things that it is timelessly good there are a lot of films seeing like psycho a lot of hitchcock stuff that people always go back to um so i think with citizen kane people are pulled in by the concept of seeing the greatest film ever made and i think for a lot of people it's maybe not their favorite film i'm sure a lot of people may find it quite boring but (laughs) it's a good film you almost feel kind of
0: productive
1: saying it but yeah it is a great film and i think people then recommend it and everything in it
0: I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think what I love about it is that it, it's a kind of, you can't really class it as one genre as such, basically, because there's, it's, it's a mixture of tragedy, there's elements of mystery in there, you know, there's, um, you know, I mean, there's some very funny moments, for example, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I find quite hilarious, basically, I mean, and, um, you know, What I want to know really is, I mean, David Fincher obviously directed Mank and he directed Mm. The Social Network. And many people have actually compared The Social Network with Citizen Kane. They've called it the digital age Citizen Kane. And now it's actually Mm. ironic, obviously, that David Fincher has actually made a movie about the making of Citizen Kane. Do you see (laughs) the similarities between Citizen Kane and The Social Network?
1: I do, yeah. I haven't seen um, The Social Network in maybe a year or so. Um, I like it a lot. I think it's a very good film, and I like David Fincher quite a lot. Um, but yeah, because Citizen Kane is that sort of it's a fictionalised biopic. It's done incredibly well, in my opinion, as well uh, for sure. But it's based on is it William Randolph Hearst? Yes, that's, yeah, that's name. Yeah, I that or William Rudolph Hearst? But doesn't sound right at all. Um, and they are. Structurally very similar. They're both, you know, these kind of manipulative kind of mercurial. Effectively, I guess, just information brokers. Charles Foster Kane controls what people think. And Zuckerberg built Facebook. And there's, yeah, it feels, it feels like I think of the two, the main similarity for me is it's principles just being eroded. At the start of both there's they you know they lay out their principles and they're like oh this is how it will work and everything like that and it just gradually is sort of corrupted by by one man until he's left all alone so I think yeah I think I think it is a very um valid comparison and I think Fincher going back and making mank, or going forward and making mank, I suppose um and, you know, directly making a film about Citizen Kane, I think kind of cements it, that it's probably always been in his mind.
0: Yeah. Sure. I mean, my next question, for example, was why do you think, the, where do you think the inspiration for Mant came from? And um, basically, I'll. Um, I want to give this a bit of context in the sense that, as you've quite rightfully said, that Citizen Kane was, I mean, the character of Charles Foster Kane was based on William Randolph Hearst, you know, who was this hugely successful businessman in the, um, in the 1930s and 40s. And, Mm. um, you know, and and, and there's clearly, that's clearly where the inspiration came from. Why? you've also touched on the fact that Citizen Kane is a very timeless film basically and you know there are sure. so many parallels I think that you can find across history with various historical figures I mean with America's former president for example basically I've always seen um, him as a kind of Kane like figure basically you know mm. that kind of idea of power corrupting and, and and that whole idea of someone who has um you know just risen through the ranks essentially basically and and has become a bit mad with all the power basically um and do do you think that like first where do you where do you think the inspiration for Mank came from and do you think that there there could be do you see that there could be parallels for example between citizen kane and the character of charles foster kane and with donald trump for example
1: yeah i do um when before i watched mank i did a little bit of reading about it. So I was curious as to why Fincher did choose to make it. And I was like, is this, you know, sort of a classic Fincher passion project or something, but he seemingly developed it from a script his brother had written back in the 1990s, Jack Finch, who's, uh, who's died now. And he was, Fincher said he was more interested in the idea of Mank or Herman Mankiewicz, the author of the screenplay. Um, going from someone who didn't want anything to do with it to then realising he'd written sort of his, his magnum opus and had to tone down in his brother's screenplay a lot of quite anti-Orson Welles, you know, kind of like kill your kill your idols sort of thing because I know Pauline Cale, the American film critic, she, did an, uh, she wrote a piece about Citizen Kane and said that Orson Welles didn't deserve basically any credit for the screenplay, he had just hired Mankiewicz for it. But, so I think that's the um, the historical sort of inspiration. And I mean, I know a lot of people said the film did feel like a bit of a hit job on Orson Welles, but it, I disagree personally. I mean, there's one, one scene in it where he's presented quite unfavorably, but it's really more of a film about not that I say it sounds so pretentious but like the creative process but it's interesting because you know it's not about how great being a writer is and for a lot of films probably why it didn't win best picture a lot of films about Hollywood tend to usually fall in line with you know Hollywood is the dream factory you know it's where dreams are made your films are wonderful business Um, but it's very anti Hollywood and anti sentimentality
0: sentimentality. it's the kind of dark side of Hollywood you know I think that's what um in the sense that you know it's so different for example to to films like La La Land for example or Mm. like once Quentin Tarantino's film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as in those movies really sort of pastiche Hollywood and they they create it in they they Picture it as something with you know gorgeous women and gorgeous men, basically, you know, and and, and you know, starlets and 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 everything like that, basically. But, um, you know, I, I think the, that this is this couldn't be more different because it's showing like you know, it's shot for one thing completely in black and white, for example, in monochrome, and it, um, you know. All the characters here are seedy and corrupt in some in some kind of way. I think, and and I always and I I always see that. I think that's very very valid parallel, basically, with with a lot of what politics is like at the moment, basically, and a lot mm. of politics in America in particular. There's so much division, for example. I, I don't know what you thought about that. No, yeah, definitely. I think it's
1: a film very much of its time, but it, it goes about it in a way that's not. You know, there's no like sort of direct references and, and things to to age it but it does feel like a very timely look uh, yeah like sort of corruption and and the influence because there's um an election running through it isn't there yeah that's right election. Yeah. upton sinclair who uh, quite a staunch socialist uh, and i found out the other day wrote a novel called oil which was the inspiration for There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Quite cool. Um, Yeah, so I think with that regard, it is, it's very conscious to sort of how, you know, as time's gone on, people don't enjoy, I guess, a more dreamy vision of of things in there. I think it's quite effective in presenting almost everything in it. as Everything is corrupt from, you know, the creative process to local politics, to all of it, you know, a place that should be inspiring idealism very quickly rejects ideas that don't align with it. Um, yeah, I think is quite relevant today with, with a lot of things, almost like the controlled narrative of Hollywood.
0: Yeah, sure. uh, absolutely, and you've got characters like Louis B. Mayer, for example, who was the MGM studio boss, basically. Who hmm. um, did did you see Judy, for example, the film about Judy Garland, basically? And there was in that film, um, you know, Louis B. Mayer, you know, they, he was shown to have a kind of predatory kind of relationship with Judy Garland, basically, and when she was younger, yeah. and, and obviously that's got a lot of comparisons now, basically, to the current and relevance now, for example, with the Weinstein scandal, for example, and all these cases of sexual harassment and the Me Too movement that have really sort of come out in Hollywood in the wake of, um, you know, the 2017 Weinstein scandal. Yeah. Um, no, I,
1: I didn't. I didn't see Judy. I I probably quite wrongly wrote it off as just another sort of saccharine um, biopic. Did that win? That won...
0: One yeah, Reni Reni won Best, Zell- best, Zell- best Actress yeah, Ren- 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 Zell- yeah, for that, and um, yeah, yeah, and it was a, it's, it's a really good film actually. A lot of people are quite down on it, but I actually really enjoyed it, and I, and I thought that it was it was very very sad, you know, because of the fact that. It was just, you know, it was just sad to see this kind of American icon just sort of essentially sort of self-destruct and sort of crumble, basically. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the character, the character of Louis B. Mayer, who who we see in um, Mank, is also in Judy as well, and and you know, we, 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 it's also revealed that he had he had this kind of predatory relationship with Judy Garland. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a changing tide with how Hollywood is being perceived. In a lot of films, and I think yeah, Mank, and by the sounds of this, Judy as well. Yeah, I I feel like the the mask has sort of cracked a little. Um, I don't mean God knows what the future will will hold, but it does feel like we are going into sort of a new era of Hollywood. And um, yeah, I think Mank has come at a perfect time. Like yeah, like you say, there are definite political comparisons, but it is very much you know every, everything not a lot is is actually much good you know it's a very corrupt and very sinister yeah. place <laughs> uh, and
0: yeah. Um, yeah absolutely and and I, and I I think that but I th- I think that's what I kind of liked about it so much was that it, it it picked apart the layers you know beneath hollywood you know in the sense beneath this sort of shiny happy very sunny kind of surface basically and tr- and, and tried to sort of show a kind of a side to hollywood that we hadn't really seen on the big screen before and i i think that was what was uh, that, that i think i think that's what was so terrific about it i mean a lot of people were quite down on, i think that's partly what a lot of people had a problem with you know a lot of people sort of felt that it was um you know it, it was quite you know, dreary and quite boring because of the fact that it was, um, you know, b- because it's so sort of dark, you know, and it's quite so chilly in its sort of execution. Um, but I I, th- I and I th- I think you can either just go with that, with that indulgence, basically, or you can find it problematic. And I think I just went with it. And I think that's what why I um, enjoyed it so much, I think. Yeah, no, I think the same.
1: I, I didn't... It's one of those films where it's like you sort of... I admired it. And I was engaged more with what it was about than sort of the actual the actual sort of film itself. Um, to the extent yeah, so I'm very interested in discussing yeah, what it has to say and, and how it goes about saying it. Yeah. And, and I am probably in rewatching it, if that makes sense. I'll talk yeah, about like it probably for years to come, but I'll probably never stick it on again.
0: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm that's actually how I felt about the social network basically I mean I haven't actually seen a social network since I was about 13 basically which was about 10 <laughs> years ago basically so yeah mm. I mean in the sense that um you know I saw that in cinemas basically but it, again it's one of those films that I think one, I, I think because of the fact that I was probably much less discerning at that point on being 13 years old and I I, mm. I actually found it quite boring when I watched it the first time basically but over the years I've grown to realize basically that it is just a great film basically it's, it's a great piece of work and you know in, in many ways one one of the best films of the, of the 2010s, I think, and I, I think there's a lot of similarities between The Social Network and Citizen Kane, because it's a, essentially a, a tale of power corrupting, basically, you know. and, and that's exactly what happens basically and um I mean did what did you think of the performances for example what did you think of Gary Oldman Amanda Seafred, for example because I, I thought that Amanda Seafred actually stole the show completely from me basically in the sense that mm. it was a very very different role for her she's playing an alcoholic you know she's playing quite a dark character for example we're used to seeing her as being you know quite adorable quite sort of cheery and lovely and everything like that basically but you know and it was just and I, I thought she she was very very captivating in the role and, and she actually almost stole the show from under under Gary Oldman's feet, I think.
1: Yeah, I um, I thought, yeah, I agree with you. Amanda Seyfried was pretty fantastic in it. And I think it was quite surprisingly genius casting because, yeah, like you say, she's typically more in more like kind of bubbly roles, but she was just this kind of miserable alcoholic. Um, yeah. yeah. I thought she was terrific. I um, When the Oscars were coming up, I thought she did have quite a fighting chance. Obviously, it went to uh, Yuen young for Minari, who she's tremendous in that. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really solid role. And Gary Oldman, I thought, was... I mean, I'm a big huge Gary Oldman fan. Just, who isn't? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I probably <laughs> don't need to explain why Gary Oldman is great. But, yeah, his performance, I thought, was terrific. He's got a lot... He's very good at kind of natural humor and he's very charismatic performance but one thing i really liked in terms of his well, i guess casting is mank or mankowitz at the time was i think only in his early 30s when he wrote the screenplay but obviously gary oldman now is in his early 60s yeah it's incredible so everyone around him is very young and i liked that mankowitz is is he, he does feel he probably was yeah like quite like a you know, quite lumbersome dude and and very, um. yeah, you know, the old saying where it's like, you know, old soul sort of thing. I think very much it does all of his heavy drinking and and cynicism and really quite not self-destructive lifestyle as such, but he really wasn't taking care of himself. And I really like the idea to put Gary Oldman in the role because it did feel like he has just, aged himself about 30 years
0: yeah (laughs) so and I I think that's what's amazing about it is the fact that he he convinced as a character you know who was about 30 years younger than he actually is you know and and I think that's what that's the mark of a great actor that you can literally Mm. change your entire image basically and I think that's what Gary Oldman has consistently done we saw it when he played Churchill for example in Darkest Hour Mm. um and here he's um you know playing a character who's meant to be in his early 30s even though he's in his early 60s and and yeah you you shouldn't believe it but you absolutely do thanks to the power of his acting you know
1: yeah it's definitely
0: yeah it doesn't feel like
1: gary oldman doing an impression of a 30 year old it feels like a 30 year old who's so haggard
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) he's 60 years old
1: yeah yeah it's tremendous um i think yeah solid It is solidly put together um charles dance obviously like classically sinister um and I think Tom Burke, who was in The Souvenir with by Joanna Hogg um, yeah. as Orson Welles, I think he had a really tremendous presence, just this sort of big booming voice on the other end of the phone, I think is a really very clever way of doing Orson Welles, because he very much was this kind of, you know, giant spectre looming over the whole production. Yeah. You know, I think of he was the,
0: Super you know, I mean, like, one yeah. of the things that I, I noticed about Citizen Kane, for example, was how much taller and bigger, you know, Orson Wells was compared to everyone else in the cast, you know, and you get oh, the sense huge. that, yeah, he is. And you get the sense that that's, he's a real genuinely monumental figure. He's like a monument, you know, for example, when you mm. look he almost looks like a sculpture because of his height and his sort of size and everything like that, basically. And and, yeah. and that's what so he just sort of commands the screen, I think. And and I think that yeah, Tom Burke did a terrific job, I think, at recreating that. I think basically, and recreate is quite an intimidating presence, you know. And I, and I think that's especially in the scene where him and Manx way trashes Manx's belongings for example at the end when they have a confrontation for example um and and yeah and and I I think he did a terrific job of really really embodying that kind of muscular kind of physicality of Orson Welles I think.
1: Yeah I agree I agree completely yeah I think yeah it's a very it's a very interesting way of doing Orson Welles for sure and he kind of arrived um I remember when he first comes in the room and he has that huge booming voice He's, he's depicted almost how you'd introduce like a Darth Vader sort of yeah. figure than you, the director of Citizen Kane. So um, I think it worked really well, and I, I like I say, I know a lot of people did feel it was a very anti orson Wells film, but I don't, I don't, I don't see that personally. I think Orson Wells is depicted kind of how everyone sort of perceives him. I, mean, I think I think for sure he's a, a genius filmmaker. He, I mean, Citizen yeah. Kane, but he it really was just genius and a yeah. fantastic creative.
0: Yeah absolutely and I think the genius of his performance is he's, he's such a huge guy but you know he almost you almost get the sense that he sort of almost shrinks into his suit basically you can feel the little man beneath that basically you can feel yeah. his kind of little boy ego essentially you know that, that, I think that's what was is so powerful about his performance Citizen Kane you, you get a sense of his fragility as well as his huge muscularity I think yeah Yeah no I, I, I agree it's yeah terrific performance um well sebastian thank you so much for coming on this podcast it's, it's been really Hi. terrific you know my um, pleasure yeah thank you for having me on yeah, and, and it's been it's just been terrific to talk to another freelance film critic and very <laughs> new to podcasting for example um and yeah it's, and, and and you're and you'll you'll be proudly amongst my hall of fame guests you know on, on this <laughs> podcast you say. For sure. so um thank you very much and um yeah cheers for doing this interview No, my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Zack the Snyder Cut the other week, or should I say Zack Snyder's Justice League, considering everyone wants to call it that. (laughs) Now this is the original 4 hour version of Justice League from 2017, Zack Snyder's long awaited Director's Cut that no one was crying out for, other than a few sad, obsessive adolescent computer nerds who salivate over kids comics. We got the 2 hour version back in 2017, directed by Joss Whedon, as if that wasn't bad enough. Now, I won't bother doing a plot summary, other than the battle between good and evil continues, and it's against a giant orc-like monster named Steppenwolf, voiced by a mannered Kieran Hines. This is basically the DC version of The Avengers, as it features Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, The Flash, Aquaman all on screen together. It should be the greatest film ever, right? <laughs> well, it just isn't. It's one of the worst films I've ever seen. Now first off, what's the difference between this and Joss Whedon's original cut? Well, for one. One thing, the movie is four hours long, the original was just two hours and still overstayed its welcome. There's no Sigrid on the soundtrack droning. Everybody knows that you know, like that, like 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 Sigrid, basically, like some wet teenager and putting a dampen on everyone's mood. I always imagine Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor singing that song. Everybody knows that the sun. (laughs) He gets a cameo here, and he's bald. Now the Snyder cut is so 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 boring. It is action that takes place in murky, Mordor-like lands, and it just reeks of green screen and looks so cheap and derivative, despite the huge budget. There's also actually very little action, just a lot of petulant, pathetic fan service, involving superheroes bloody standing around in circles and explaining the plot to one another in the most fatuous way possible. Steppenwolf is an awful villain. I mean, Kieran Hines' voice is not an inch of menace, and the CGI just looks as if the Twilight guys had drawn a werewolf and forgot to switch the laptop off. I mean, he's worse than Keira Delevingne's Enchantress, for example. Thank fuck, then, for Gadot, her hot pants, and Wonder Woman. (laughs) She gets a really kick-ass in this movie. I mean, Snyder clearly has much more of a feminist agenda than, than Whedon did, which I suppose is good, considering the allegations coming out against Whedon at the moment. It's slightly disconcerting... Disconcerting though to see Amber Heard as Mira, considering the allegations against her coming out in the moments. I just wish—I I just wanted to scream justice for Johnny. <laughs> to sum it up, the Snyder Cut is bloody boring, incomprehensible, a complete mess. Watching it is like getting struck with a baton—a finger-batting beefcake boredom from a director who confuses murkiness with actual darkness. I mean, one of the worst things about the Whedon Cut was Ezra Miller and his pathetic attempts at humour as, as Flash so bloody annoying now trust me after watching the snyder cut you'll be wanting him to come along and just pull out a nice quip it's really bad really 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 bad that zack snyder's justice league and it's on sky cinema and now tv now please don't watch it so we've got time for one more film and i couldn't leave you without talking about nomadland which obviously made history by winning the best picture oscar but also being both you know, the first film directed by a woman of colour to win the Best Picture Oscar. It's directed by Chloe Zhao who is also the first woman of colour to win Best Director. She's a terrific director who made the brilliant western The Rider and is soon to be seen helming the Marvel superhero flick The Eternals which is out next year. Now Nomadland is based on a 2017 non-fiction book called Nomadland Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder and stars three-time Oscar winner Frances McDormand who won Best Actress recently me. It's basically about a woman travelling around America. The year is ni- 2011 and Fr- McDormand's fern loses her job at the US gypsum plant in Empire, Nevada. The company shut down and she worked there for four long years along with her recently deceived, d- d- deceased husband. Fern sells most of her property and buys a campervan to live in and travel the country in search of work. She also begins a seasonal job at an Amazon fulfillment center through the winter. Linda, played by Linda May, who is Fern's friend and co-worker, invites Fern to a desert rendezvous point in Arizona, organized by Bob Wells. Fern initially declines, but when the weather goes cold, she changes her mind and struggles to find work in the area. Here, Fern meets nomads and learns basic survival skills. First thing to say is that the scenery is stunning. I love. Chloe Zhao's rugged, clandestine camerawork that beautifully films the asymmetrical beauty and brutality of the American Midwest. For example, there's a scene where the van is travelling on the main road where this works particularly well. Through Zhao's cinematography, you live, breathe and feel like a nomad. Now, Frances McDormand is always an indomitable presence. She's a three-time Oscar winner, for goodness sake, and this role certainly has echoes of her hard-bitten turn as a pregnant cop in Fargo, and as a woman seeking vengeance for her rape daughter in Three Billboards Outside Emming, Missouri. I believed in Fern's pain and loneliness and destitution. You really get the sense she's really feeling the shits of life, especially when you see her literally taking a shit in her camper van. (laughs) But I couldn't help but feel we've seen better lead actress performances this awards season. I mean, I think McDormand is steely and determined, but I don't think it's a particularly challenging role. She doesn't have to give birth on camera like Vanessa Kirby in *Piece of a Woman, for example, or get bitch slapped by Peter Dinklage like Rosamund Pike did in I Care A Lot. Those were better performances, in my opinion. That, you know, those were the ones that should have won instead. As for the rest of the movie, it looks good. I love the use of landscape and minute details, which brought to mind Terence Malick and his whispery shots of blades of grass in the thin red line. Yet, good scenery only goes so far, and repetitive shots of campervans driving through the Midwest become pretty tiresome after a while. I like the scenery and I like Francis McDormand, but this year we've had so many Oscar contenders like Judas and the Black Messiah, Sound of Metal, Minari and *Mank*. I'd have been happy if any of those won, but Nomadland feels like a bit of a safe bet for the pretty boringly safe Oscars. I bet in years to come there'll be pub quiz questions like what didn't win the Oscar the year Nomadland won, and the answer will be all those films I've just mentioned. They were better films and it's a travesty this movie has beat them. It's a very forgettable and a bit boring, you know, and the worst it's it's the worst best picture winner since Green Book and it won't stand the test of time. That's Nomadland and it's on Disney Plus now and in cinemas from may seventeenth. Very disappointing. So that's it for this week's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have and couldn't leave you without asking you the titular question. That's what you've been watching. I want to know what you've watched at home, on your TV screen or at a drive in cinema. Whatever it is, let me know at my podcast email address. That's what you've been watching at roshansreviews.co.uk. That's it from me today, guys. Thank you so much for listening and happy watching.